Send in the clowns, those laughy daffy clowns. Send in those woeful and soulful schmucks by the bowlful clowns. Fuck you, Friday listeners. Hello, Alan, back on the air after a hundred thousand million years. I've been floating through the nightmare sphere. I've been completely absent. I've been uh, obliterated, eliminated, destroyed, and eviscerated out in high space but I'm back now in your ears for your listening pleasure or displeasure it's up to you I'm not trying to push your boundaries whatever you like oh waffle 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 house come on down to Alan's waffle house well since I uh, spoke to you last I made a short uh, half English half Chinese film that has already been entered into and rejected by dozens and dozens of film festivals all across the world Uh, so and it has actually gotten into one or two as well Um, so that went really well I had an amazing uh, group of uh, friends and colleagues and friends of friends who helped me get that done so that was super cool I'm not going to go into too many details about what uh, the film Overseas Guide Jing Wai Zhi Yu was about um, but if you are interested in finding out what our little short film was about you can go to 8millimeternetwork.com and you can find the tab that says Overseas Guide we've got trailers we've got still pictures and all that kind of malarkey uh, what else have I been up to well I've moved up to London Order! I was in sunny bright town for a while, moved up to London, uh, did a stand-up comedy course, and now I am going and doing uh, various stand-up comedy open mics around London. That was my current focus for the last few months, and it's been going very, very well. Uh, very interesting. It's the first kind of uh, art form thing I've done that's very public-facing, so unlike uh, Fuck You Friday, where I just record something, and then uh, I put it out, and you either like it or not. Uh, uh, the stand-up comedy is really interesting for me, because like, as you're saying stuff, and as it's happening, the crowd is reacting directly to you, and depending on how they react and what happens, uh, sometimes you can improvise a little something uh, to do with the room that you're in or somebody in the audience, but also um, just their tone, their attitude, whether they laugh or not, really influences the overall product of the five-minute set. So from that point of view, it's really, really interesting, and sometimes uh, my sets have gone really, really well and have just killed it. So much soul and sexy ladies and Which is great, it's so much fun, and then sometimes Hello, darkness, my old friend. just completely bombed uh, and that is uh, 100% soul destroying uh, but it's also really really interesting because then you learn like oh kind of what stuff works and what doesn't work or what works consistently so before I used to be uh, more aggressive uh, theatrical and kind of zany on stage um, and I found that that worked really well in some places and not not at all in other places so I've removed the aggressive and the theatrical kind of stuff and just focused more on being a bit more zany and that's seems to work across the board. Now, it's not that I won't come back to that other style, uh, but it's just something that I've observed and I'm just playing around with. So, from that point of view, uh, doing it is really, really interesting. Am I going to keep doing this stand-up comedy stuff forever? I don't know. I mean, everything, everybody, you know, if you listen to podcasts and stand-up comedians, they're just like... Yeah, so basically I I did it four times a day for the last uh, 27 years, and uh, then, just uh, recently, I, I finally started making a little bit of money. Uh, so yeah, that just sounds really, really bleak. And you know, I I gotta be honest with you, I'm I'm a lazy, lazy man. 
in many regards. So I don't know if I have the staying power for that. But uh, I don't know. I'm definitely going to keep doing it uh, for the next uh, while, next at least for as long as I'm in London anyways. And I definitely recommend if you think it's something that you would be interested in doing, uh, definitely try it out because even if you don't decide to be a stand-up comedy person, uh, it's really uh, it's a fascinating, amazing, kind of interesting sort of an experience. Great for your self-confidence as well. Um, and also great for your uh, dying on your ass and then getting back up on stage and doing it again. I think it's very important to like do things that you suck at or to fail in a way that is like catastrophically devastating uh, because it builds character. So uh, comedians are sort of a type of clown. Also at the moment it seems like there's a lot of clowns in the media and of course we are now approaching Halloween, the time of killer evil clowns. So I thought wouldn't it be nice if I made an entire Fuck You Friday episode dedicated entirely to the clown. So fuck up or suck up because we're here on Send in the clowns. So we cannot talk about the origins of the clown unless we first talk about the origins of something called Commedia dell'arte. Now, Commedia dell'arte is an Italian early form of theatre um, and it literally means comedy of the profession. So it's kind of like the professional comedian, the professional funny people. Um, it comes out of Italy in around the 1500s, the 16th century and becomes popular all across Europe and beyond between the 16th and the 18th century. Um, now, people are not exactly sure what the origins of this particular type of theatre are. Uh, one of the theories is that it comes from an early improvised form of theatre called the Atellan farces in ancient Rome. However, the first written records of um, modern Commedia dell'arte come from Rome, as in modern Rome, in around 1551, uh, and it is noted that Commedia dell'arte was performed outdoors in temporary venues, and that the characters always uh, normally wore lots of masks, and that was opposed to Commedia erudita, as in erudite, which were comedies, plays that were performed indoors by unmasked actors. So right from the jump, Commedia dell'arte is kind of separated from indoor highbrow comedy plays. It is outdoors, there's masks being worn, it is plays that are for the amusement of the masses. It's kind of a populist form of entertainment. Now the idea of these masks goes all the way back to ancient Rome, but is also connected to the concept of carnival. Now carnivals in a kind of Christian Europe basically took place between the Epiphany and Ash Wednesday. So that is a big celebration just before Lent. Carnival is kind of an inversion ceremony. So that is that the people uh, who normally have to slave away all year get to indulge and enjoy themselves in a way that would normally be restricted only to the aristocracy. So during this time, people would eat the last of the preserved meats, the last of the preserved foods that they were going to be able to consume before Lent, uh, a time of fasting, uh, waiting for the you know spring to arrive. Um, also during this time, uh, normal, ordinary people would uh, engage in sort of lots of sexual activity because again during Lent you weren't supposed to sex it up so much and there was also this tradition of wearing these large elaborate masks and you know parading through town although it's not a hundred percent clear um, what the origins of some of these traditions are lots of the theories are that it goes back to pagan rituals um, hoping to encourage uh, you know a good spring an early spring um, and that is perhaps where some of the uh, the masked elements come from although those links are pretty much unsubstantial 
substantiated and have been debated by historians. It's thought that Commedia dell'arte plays were probably taking place during the time of Carnival. So you can imagine that the essence or the vibe and the mass of the Carnival influencing what Commedia dell'arte would become. Regardless of the actual origins, by the mid-16th century, troops of Commedia dell'arte performers began to form. So in 1568, we have the first written account of a company of Commedia dell'arte performers, and that company was called the Gelosi. Their logo, their insignia was Janus, which is the Roman god that has two faces. Um, and the reason that they have the Janus as their symbol is, is because it represents the idea of the actor and the character and the duality of both, which is something that we are going to come back to again later. So the Gelosi and other troops of Commedia dell'arte performers began to travel all across Europe and visit different towns, putting on their plays and their shows. Now, they were not always welcome because this is a time when you had the plague going on. So a bunch of strangers rolling into town was not always a good thing because they were thought that they might be spreading plague with them. Also, lots of the performances were pretty kind of bawdy, sexy sort of stories, frequently involving nudity by some of the players. So the religious figures in lots of medieval towns weren't so happy to see Commedia dell'arte people rolling into town. Uh, but the common people obviously uh, were very excited to see them. Interestingly enough, these were the first plays performed in Europe where female roles were actually performed by women. At this time, all female roles on stage were still being performed by men. And this was yet another reason why lots of sort of highbrow um, theatre critics would look down on Commedia dell'arte as an uncouth form of theatre. So what exactly is Commedia dell'arte? Well, basically, there's three main kind of characteristics of Commedia dell'arte that sets it apart from other forms of theatre. So the first one is this idea of a mix of improvised and scripted material. The players in Commedia dell'arte, and from now on, I'm just going to call them Commedia just because it's it's, it's it's fucking annoying me to keep saying Commedia dell'arte. Commedia dell'arte. So the players in the Commedia would uh, improvise certain skits, certain bits, and they would take into account local happenings, local political developments, and work those into their stories. But they also had certain like uh, bits, routines, gags that they would put into every performance. These were called the lazi, uh, which literally means something foolish or witty. Um, frequently, these would have been like slapstick um, physical comedy sequences that they could put in the middle of maybe um, slightly more serious improvised scenes to lighten the mood or to keep people's interest if they felt that the audience wasn't reacting. So somewhat similar to stand-up comedy and uh, unusual from other types of theatre performance, there is this thing whereby you are going to modify the performance depending on the reaction you get from the crowd. So that is something that makes Comedia very, very uh, unique. The next element of Comedia is pantomime and slapstick. In fact, the word slapstick itself comes from Comedia dell'arte. Um, the, the word slapstick comes from the Italian battaccio, which was literally a stick or kind of a bat that characters would use to hit each other across the head or on the back with. The front of it looks like a bat or a stick, but behind it there is a second kind of a stick on a hinge. So when you lightly tap someone with it, um, the second piece of wood clacks against the, the main bat, making a large slap sound. So it would seem to the audience as if you really clocked the other member of uh, your troupe. And then when it comes to pantomime, uh, lots of these uh, stories would be used using physical humour, physical comedy, kind of miming things out. And one reason for this is obviously just because it's, it's funny and that's interesting. It was a form of humour that they developed. But also it's because these were mobile troops. They were moving from uh, area to area but also from country to country. So sometimes uh, some of the players would not have the language skills needed to um, be witty 
or entertaining using language, so they would have to use physicality in order to get some of that humor across. So that is another reason why um, pantomime played a big part in the comedy performances of the Comedia. The third pillar of Comedia, and this is the one that's going to lead us towards clowns, is this idea of mass types, of tropes, of stock characters that are used over and over again in different plays and in different scenarios, but the characters themselves do not actually really change fundamentally. So the Comedia characters were kind of um, exaggerated uh, versions of sort of real uh, social stereotypes. So there are four main types of characters. So you've got the old men, who are the vecchi, the lovers, who are the innamorati, the captains, who are the capitani, and the servants, who are the zani. Uh, or the Zani, I'm not really sure. By the way, also, really, really sorry to anyone who actually speaks Italian. Obviously, my pronunciation is just, just dog chitti. And within each of those four categories, there were lots and lots of different characters. But each one of those characters, in terms of their specific um, types, their tropes, their personality, didn't change over time, even though the stories would change over time. They would just fit into them in different ways. Just an extra note here in post-production. Um, yeah, so it's not that you have exactly the same number of the same characters every time. You might select different characters for different plays, but they're all coming from a stable of characters. And the characteristics, the traits, and even the names of those characters do not change from play to play. Interestingly enough, um, some of the characters wore masks and some of the characters didn't. Any character who was played by a woman, a female character, never wore masks. Some of the more serious characters occasionally wore wore masks and the servants or the zany class always wore masks and later on as the art form evolved some of those masks were replaced with painted faces which you can kind of see where that's going anyway um, before we get there just to say that the Commedia dell'arte evolved and changed everywhere it went so because these troops were moving all across Europe and because of the somewhat improvisational nature of Commedia itself what Commedia meant what it was changed depending on where it went so for example uh, Commedia is actually the our earliest form of what we had now in Britain and Ireland call pantomimes, as in pantos, as in your Christmas panto, like She's behind you! I'm your transvestite fairy godmother! And all this kind of malarkey. And also, Comedia is the origin of Punch and Judy, uh, the beloved uh, puppet show in the UK all about spousal abuse. The character of Punch himself has in origins in one of the zany characters from Comedia called Punchinella. Also, back in Italy, the characters and the plots from Comedia performances ended up being included into some very, very famous operas, including those written by Rossini, Verdi and Puccini. So we can see that Commedia as an art form um, spreads, it changes, and it has a huge influence on uh, European culture and art at the time and still all the way up to today. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Alan, clowns, where are the fucking clowns? Don't worry, we're going to get to the clowns uh, in one moment. But first, we just have to take a quick look back at the character types. The category of character that we are most interested in is the zany. And straight away, even when you hear that word, you might be like, huh, zany? They sound like they might be zany. And that is the actual origin of the term zany. Zany in Italian meant, I don't know if it still means this now because, you know, language changes over time. Uh, but back then, zany meant rustic fool. 
which seems a little harsh. Um, so the Zany themselves were servant characters, so they were lower status characters in the play. And the Zany could be loosely divided into two subcategories themselves. So first Zany, or Il Furbo, that was a very clever, witty sort of a character, and he would often be involved in moving the plot forward. Then you have the second Zany, or Lo Stupido. Um, uh, and as you might imagine, uh, the Lo Stupido were foolish, clumsy, dull characters. Now, Lo Stupido Zany were not there for a driving plot. They were there basically just as a foil for the first Zany. They were there for comic relief. By the 17th century, um, uh, the most popular of the Zany was called the Harlequin. So the Harlequin was a type of first Zany. So he was a clever, mischievous, kind of trickster character who often also had magic powers for some reason and was frequently involved in a romance with the daughter of one of the old men characters. In fact, um, the Harlequin became so popular in his own right uh, that in the 17th century in England, um, a whole new type of comedia was written entirely around the character of the Harlequin. And this new type of comedic theatre production was called the Harlequinade. Now, the important thing about the Harlequin is that the Harlequin was the first zany and the second zany that was the foil or the partner to the Harlequin was in fact the clown. <laughs> now, just getting into etymology a little bit, the term clown uh, existed outside of the comedia. It is first recorded in 1560 as a generic uh, term meaning a rustic boar or peasant. However, by 1600, the term clown was being used to refer to a professional fool or jester as well as just a sort of an insulting term for an idiot. Um, and it appears as such in Elizabethan plays and including those of William Shakespeare. So the concept of the clown as a prankster or a jester like persona does exist outside of the Commedia dell'arte. But within the Commedia, the clown was a specific character type. He was the second zany to the Harlequin. So originally the clown really in himself wasn't anything special. He was just there as comic relief for the Harlequin. He dressed in kind of tattered lower class servant's clothes. But that was up until 1800 when one of the most famous early clowns, Joseph Grimaldi, starred in a Harlequinade called Harlequin in the Flying World. The piece was written by the British composer, musician, dramatist, novelist and actor Charles Dibbin. Uh, and we're going to remember his name because it, he comes up again a bit later on. It was he who changed the clown's costume so it was no longer just dull uh, rags but was in fact garishly colourful patterned with large diamonds and circles and fringed with tassels and ruffs. That particular production was such a big hit that um, costume designers all over London who were putting on their own harlequinades and comedias started to mimic that style of clothes in particular for the clown. Later on in the same year of 1800 another production uh, was put on uh, called the Harlequin Amulet that again starred Joseph Grimaldi. In the Harlequin Amulet, the character of the Harlequin was changed a little bit. So he became kind of less of a zany in a sense. He became less funny, less comedic, and more of a romantic and mercurial uh, character. So now that the Harlequin himself was no longer really a source of comic relief, as he had been to some extent in the earlier Comedia and Harlequinades, this left the clown as the sole origin of comedy, the sole agent of mischief and antics within these Harlequinade plays. So on the back of the changes that took place within the Harlequinade uh, and Grimaldi's own great talent, he basically began to build the character of what we now would think of as being the modern day clown. He uh, invented lots of the slapstick antics. He invented, in fact, lots of the catchphrases that clowns would use for years and years and afterwards and still up until this day. And uh, to quote an approving admirer of the time, he perfected 
clown atrocity. As well as elevating the character of the clown and perhaps creating the concept of clowning as we know it today, uh, he also used his um, position as a kind of mass trickster to satirize um, politics and power, and his presence on stage as a clown was one of the very few places that you could do that uh, at that time in uh, England. Basically, the guy was a mega, mega superstar. In fact, Joseph Grimaldi became so associated with the concept of the clown that clowns were, for years, generations afterwards, and still right up until this day in some circles, referred to themselves as Joey's. Just to put into context what a massive megastar Joseph Grimaldi was at this time, his biography was actually written by Charles Dickens. So we can see how the comedia evolved the character of the clown, but of course I know what lots of you are thinking is, Alan, I don't really associate clowns with plays or being on the stage, I associate clowns with the circus, and that's the second part of this clown formula that we've got to look at. So in and around the same time that the clown was beginning to gain status as a main character in the Harlequinade, uh, and as clowning began to evolve, the concept of the modern circus was also being invented. The father of the modern circus is Philip Astley. He was born in 1742 and he was an equestrian, he was a horse rider and he was famous for being a trick rider, which is somebody who would do basically different types of tricks and performances on horseback. By 1768, Astley had opened his own equestrian school in London um, and in the mornings he would teach in the equestrian school, but in the afternoons uh, he would um, perform in an open field in what is now Waterloo, uh, doing all these trick riding sort of shows and they were a really really big hit but after a couple of seasons he realized in order to ensure repeat business and to draw the punters back in time after time he had to bring in some other performers so he hired musicians jugglers tightrope walkers dancing dogs and yes in fact clowns. Another little post-production note here, it's not clear what type of clowns were being hired into the circus at that stage. Uh, were they clowns in the sense that they were the kind of clowns that were found as characters on stage in the Harlequinades, in the Comedia? Or were they clowns that were more like uh, jesters or court fools? Not entirely sure what is meant uh, in the record here when it says that um, he hired clowns, but we'll explore that in a second. In 1780, he built a roof over the structure so that audiences could enjoy these performances all year round. So he really is the father of the circus. However, it was Charles Dibbin, and you might remember him from earlier as the playwright who transformed the appearance of the clown. It was Charles Dibbin who actually coined the word circus in its modern context two years later in 1782 when he opened his own circus across the river from Astley's, which he christened the Royal Circus. Now it is worth noting that the Royal Circus opened eight years before uh, Dibbin wrote Harlequin in the Flying world which was the um, play which transformed the appearance of the clown to greater resemble its current form so we can only speculate in terms of which came first the chicken or the egg did Dibbin's circus and the performers he had to get into the circus uh, influence the clothing choice that he wrote for the play perhaps the clowns were not as visible from the cheap seats in the back and that's why he wanted them to wear more colorful or garish costumes or perhaps they wore dull costumes up until he transformed the costume in the play and then the play fed back into the appearance of clowns in the circus. It's really hard to know which one came first, but in any case, we can see that there's kind of a feedback loop. We now have clowns in the circus and we have clowns on stage and the appearance and the actions of, the of both groups seem to be influencing each other to bring us closer to what we think of as the modern clown. 
So it's really a fascinating history. Initially, the term clown is a generic term that refers to any kind of a fool or a jester. Then the term comes to be used in comedia to refer to a specific character of the clown. That character then grows and evolves and changes um, to become more familiar to what we would think of as a clown today. That specific character type moves into the circus where the term clown kind of becomes a generic term again in the sense that there ends up being multiple different clowns. When it comes to circus clowns, they essentially split into three different types. So the first type of circus clown is the white face clown. Now the white face clown is um, uh, is what Grimaldi would have looked like himself. If you know um, the Tim Curry version of it. Um, from the TV adaptation of Stephen King's It, he would also be a white-faced clown. So the entire skin of the face and the neck is totally painted white um, with details around the eyes and mouth painted in originally or traditionally in red or black. In terms of costume, he would dress very extravagantly. They would have ruffled collars, a pointed hat, and um, would be the typified, the kind of main person's idea of what a clown suit would be. This all was to indicate that their status. He's a straight man character. He's a serious character. He's kind of basically the main clown, the boss clown kind of in charge of, you know, the hilarious, ridiculous operation of whatever the clowns were up to that day. The second type of clown is called the August Clown. Now, the base color for the August Clown makeup is a uh, red or flesh tone, or sometimes just no makeup at all. Um, uh, but the eyes and the mouths themselves are encircled with uh, large white kind of circles to highlight the eyes and mouth over the top of the skin or red tone. I remember when I was a child, the posters they used to have up for Duffy's Circus used to have these type of clowns on the posters not sure if anyone else can remember that um, in terms of clothes they would wear baggy plaid uh, costumes or polka dot costumes with bright stripes um, frequently they would wear wide collars and really long fat kind of exaggerated neckties um, frequently as well they would wear colored wigs and oversized noses and shoes so again these are characteristics that we kind of associate with all clowns now but originally they were quite separate categories so you wouldn't get the big shoes on the uh, white face clown you don't eat, for example, you'd only normally get them on the August Clown. On the topic of red noses, um, the origin of the red nose is very vague. People aren't exactly sure when that became a recurring trope. Uh, one theory is that um, uh, in the sort of slightly more adult origins of the clown, a red nose was there to indicate that this clown was perhaps a bumbling idiot because he was an alcoholic. I was originally painted red and then eventually, you know, graduated into the sort of fluffy red nose that we have today. Um, in terms of character type, the August Clown uh, was not a clever clown. He was a dim-witted sort of guy. He was the one who was always getting squirted in the face by flowers, knocked over on his butt, um, getting pies to the face, getting his pants ripped off, all this kind of stuff. He was the butt of the joke, was the August clown. Now, the third type of clown, very importantly, is the character clown. So the character clown, um, uh, to some extent, would have maybe some of the characteristics of the other two clowns, but essentially, he would adopt an exaggerated version of the characteristics of a character type. So, for example, he might be a butcher, a policeman, a waiter, a hobo, uh, the hobo type being really, really popular in America uh, when circuses moved over to the States. In terms of his appearance, he, he would kind of have a normal enough human face, but with exaggerated elements, so maybe really big um, uh, glasses, a fake mustache, or like really big ears or strange haircuts, something like that. So in a traditional group of three clowns, um, the character clown would work as what is known as the contra-August, so the sort of against the August. So this clown was kind of in the middle. Um, so basically, you'd have the boss clown, you kind of have the idiot clown, and then the contra-August, who would frequently 
definitely be a character of some sort, is kind of in the middle. So he's either kind of going to be taking the side of the boss clown, trying to emulate the boss clown, trying to sort of um, uh, gain or win the respect of the boss clown and is, you know, giving out to the idiot clown, the um, august clown. Or sometimes he might be a bit smarter than the august clown, um, but kind of side with the august clown against the white face clown, the kind of boss clown. Now, I, sh I should note, I keep saying boss clown. Boss clown itself, actually, is a term that means a clown that leads all clowning activities in the circus, so I'm, I'm, I'm not using it in that technical sense. Uh, so, for example, if you know the Marx Brothers, Groucho Marx would be like the white-faced clown. He's kind of like the, the brains of the operation. Then you'd have Gummo Marx, who's the doofusy one. And then you'd have Chico. And Chico is a perfect example of a character contra August Clown because he's an exaggeration of an Italian immigrant stereotype, so he's a character type. But also, he's always giving out to Gummo and kind of trying to suck up to or get on the side of Groucho Marx. So he's a perfect example of that. It is worth noting that the hobo or tramp clown as a character clown became so popular in America that these days it in itself is thought of as being a separate category of clowning uh, and is no longer included in the character clown. A classic example of a developed version of the hobo clown would be of course Charlie Chaplin. Just as a side note, a couple of fun bits of lingo I came across when I was researching clowns is the blow-off, uh, which is a clown term for the punchline of a clown gag or joke, and also Clown Alley, uh, which is the area in which the clowns uh, dress up and get their props ready and wait before they go on stage. Pretty sure I'm living in fucking Clown Alley right now. Uh -huh. So now we have all the elements in place for what we would think of as our modern idea of what a clown looks like and acts like. Circuses were originally a kind of an adult form of entertainment, but of course, a marketer soon realized that children were a great potential uh, money-making audience member and would get whole families to come to the circus. So circuses kind of gradually moved towards being more family-friendly sort of fair. Circuses would remain incredibly popular in the US and in Europe, but with the advent initially of vaudeville and then eventually of cinemas, some of their audience would be taken away. So in one way we could say uh, cinema kind of had a damaging effect on the circus. But from another point of view, cinema helped to grow and evolve clowning uh, in the characters of the Marx Brothers and Charlie Chaplin and so forth. Uh, although by that stage they had changed so much that superficially they no longer resembled clowns in the circus clown sense. However, arguably even more so than cinema, uh, it was television that had the biggest transformative effect on clowns and clowning. In the 1940s, clowns started coming into people's homes via television. That sounds very menacing, doesn't it? So it's coming into people's homes via television um, uh, with the advent of the Bozo Show in 1949. Bozo Circus is on the air! really interesting television show in the sense that in the 1950s it was um, franchised so different local stations would have their own bozo show with different people different uh, actors playing bozo the clown now the theme of bozo's big top was that it was a kind of a circus but ultimately it was focused all around bozo himself and playing games with kids and having different interactions with kids different segments um, sometimes with like local people from law enforcement or whatever it was coming on the 
show there was a real kind of a local edge to some of it um, so but that kind of put the clown kind of although the theme was the circus the focus was the clown like he was doing his own kind of show in 1960 uh, one of these franchise versions of the bozo show um, was sponsored by a local McDonald's and they found that by sponsoring the bozo show uh, the sales of their burgers and fries and garbage went up by about 30 percent so in 1963 McDonald's piloted their character of Ronald McDonald who was actually played by one of the original clowns that had played bozo on that local station those advertisements had such a positive reaction that by 1966 they had rolled out the Ronald McDonald character to all over America and with the increasing popularity of clowns like bozo and Ronald McDonald's we also start to see the start of people dressing up as clowns going to children's birthday so this is just important in the sense that the clown himself is kind of moved away from the circus and is kind of becoming his own one-man show his own focus of attention but of course the real question on everyone's red painted lips uh, is when did clowns actually become scary freaky and weird or were they always scary freaky and weird um, I read a lot around this and there seems to be quite a bit of debate I'm gonna tell you my take on it um, which isn't the same as everybody else's but we'll kind of go through some of the evidence so the first ever sort of recorded evidence of a clownish character who's a bit evil would be the story Hop Frog um, written by Edgar Allan Poe first published in 1849 so that goes back a bit just as a side note there's an amazing version and interpretation of Hop Frog that is read by October Pod the YouTube based podcast that we have been doing some collaboration work with recently um, uh, the October Pod itself is fucking amazing Edward October just has a magical voice it's 1.38 a.m. Time for October Pod. They do a fantastic um, reading of Hop Frog. So if you like Edgar Allan Poe and Creepy Voices, definitely check out their version of Hop Frog. Um, the story of Hop Frog basically is there's a, there's a little person um, uh, who is a kind of jester in the court of this rather cruel king. They're very cruel to him because of his small stature. And basically he gets revenge on the court by setting everything on fire. Spoiler alert. Um, it's it's quite a good little story. I, I don't really fully buy that as being the origins of the evil clown, though. I know he's a jester. But he's it, it, at that stage, um, the, the description of him does not remind me of the modern day clown, so I don't really buy that one. Another proposed origin of the evil clown comes from 1890 uh, with the, and again, apologies for my terrible Italian, Ruggero Leon Cavallo's Paiacci which features a murderous clown called Canio. Uh, it's a really interesting piece. It's a play within a play. So it is a Commedia play, but within the Commedia play, there is another Commedia play going on. And the clown character, the character who plays the clown in the play, playing a clown, finds out that his wife is having an affair in real life and that in the play that he's playing within the play, the character is also having an affair. So, you know, as you can imagine, it comes to a head on stage and he literally kills I don't know if he kills her or if he kills a lover I can't remember uh, but he kills one or both of them on stage and the famous line from that play is the comedy is finished which he says at the end to let everybody know that it was kind of real now the only thing about this is I personally still don't think that this really counts as an origin of the evil clown trope because the clown the character of the clown 
isn't really evil. It's the actor playing him who becomes jealous and wants to, you know, you know, kill the wife or kill the, the, the lover or whatever it is. So again, the character of the clown isn't exactly evil. So I, I feel like, although I can see why people view this as an origin, it doesn't sort of tonally fit with what I think of as the modern day evil clown. Which brings me on to a broader point. Certain people, uh, like Benjamin Radford, who wrote a book about bad clowns, and a podcast that I use for some fantastic source of some information, Decoder Ring, which is brought to you by Slate, they also put forth this idea that clowns have always had a creepy kind of duality to them. There's always been this kind of spooky underbelly. And personally, I I don't buy that, actually. I I don't believe that that is the case. I should say, I don't believe it's the case in the way that they propose it. So, um, David Carlin, uh, who was a former, uh, is a playwright, author, and former clown with Ringling Brothers Circus and Barnum and Bailey Circus. His theory is that chlorophobia, or the fear of clowns, is is actually quite a new phenomenon, and it comes from the 60s and 70s, the counter culture. He says, and I quote, Anything that gets that much glorification and is sentimentalized within an inch of its life invites someone to snark at it. So what he is saying that in his experience, he was a clown for years and years and years. He never had anyone express fear or negative feelings towards him. He thinks that it is because the clown was so universally beloved and liked for such a long amount of time that it was ripe for inversion. It was ripe for being satirized. And I basically agree with that argument. Because when you look back at clowns throughout history, History, whether they're performing in circuses, whether they're performing in the comedias, yes, they are sort of tricksters, they're pranksters, but in the, as far as I could tell in all my reading, there's no real evilness or badness or, or dark side to the characters. Now, that's a really important distinction to make, and this is what I think some people in their analysis are mixing up. There's always been a duality between the actor and the character. So, for example, Grimaldi himself was notoriously very depressed. Frequently, circus performers were known to have substance abuse problems, like alcohol abuse problems and things like that. But the duality, the separation of the actor and the character um, is very different from this idea that the clown himself as a character was kind of thought of as being bad or spooky, particular by children. And I think this is really borne out when you just look at McDonald's. You look at the mass marketing campaigns that took place around clowns. These are corporations who want to make squillions and millions and billions of dollars. They do not put stuff that they think is going to be scary and weird as their mascots, right? And those advertisement campaigns would not have worked if people genuinely always had this underlying, or at least the majority of people, always had this underlying fear of clowns. So I agree with David Carlon uh, in that I don't think that historically speaking, clowns were considered to be creepy or weird. So when and why exactly did that change? Well, I think this is really, really fascinating. But I think there's a couple of factors that kind of coalesce together to create the modern day fear of clowns. The big part is what we already briefly touched on, but when you need to look at it in more detail, which is that is the move from clowns from being on the stage or in the circus ring to being on television. One of the things that psychologists cite as being strange or just unnerving about masked creatures or people who are wearing makeup is this idea that you can't tell what their expressions are. From a distance, an exaggerated face painted on facial expression isn't scary.
scary because we can't actually at all see the human face underneath it so there's no there's no clash there's no dissonance but the timing of this stuff is really really important because remember prior to um, the mass adoption of, of television in the sort of 1950s moving to the 60s and 70s as more and more people get television the primary place where people are seeing clowns is still going to be in the circus from a distance up to their antics where this weird sense of dissonance of not being able to quite see what they really look like underneath is an issue. So in the 40s and 50s, lots of children would still have their initial interaction with clowns in the circus where you don't have that weird, strange, disconnect, unheimlich kind of feeling. Later on, they would go on to see clowns again on television. Now, maybe when you see them on television, there's the potential for it to be a bit unnerving, but because those children would already have had the positive experience of seeing the clown in the circus, that I think would have counteracted that sense of kind of weirdness. However, as you move into the 60s, 70s and so on, more and more children and maybe people generally are having their first view of clowns, their first interaction with clowns via the television or perhaps even via an up-close uh, clown at a birthday party. When you are up close to the clown, you are more likely to have that sense of strange unnerviness where you can see the face but you can't quite see the face. So my theory would be that that sort of sense of unease around the clown was building up in the background even though, again as previously stated, clowns were still universally beloved and used in advertisements for all sorts of products and different things going up into the, um, uh, all the way up through the 50s, 60s, 70s. So that's one element. The other element is the counter-cultural movement that was building. The squeaky clean image of suburban America from the 1950s um, was being undermined, was being countered, was being um, criticized by the counterculture youth movement that was happening in America in the 60s and 70s. So as a symbol for universally belovedness, for universally likedness that the clown was, it was ripe and ready to be subverted. So we have potentially the growing sense of discomfort around clowns. Now they're up close and personal with us via television. We also have this um, growing sense that traditional values need to be undermined and subverted with the countercultural movements. All of this comes crashing together in 1978 with the arrest of John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer and rapist, who was named by the media as the killer clown. Now, if you don't know anything about John Wayne Gacy. Lucky you. He was an absolute horror show of a nightmare of a hulking big fat man uh, who used to rape and murder um, young boys and men and bury them under his house. Absolute fucking horror show. But he was also a politician, a local politician, and also was sometimes a clown. And there were quite a few pictures of him dressed up as a clown. Now, there is zero evidence that he ever committed any murders as a clown, but obviously you can imagine newspapers were dying to include this creepy, strange detail. Photos of it were leaked. Biographies of John Wayne Gacy were written that had him dressed as a clown on the cover. So the concept of the killer clown was born. Shortly after, in the 1980s, National Lampoon releases a series of mock comic books called Evil Clown, which featured the um, malevolent, hideous antics of a clown called Frenchie the Clown. Really, I had a look at some of it. Really, some real nasty, vile, disgusting stuff. Um, and then, of course, in 1986, the horror novel It is released by American uh, horror uh, terror author Stephen King. And very interestingly enough, King stated that he got the idea 
idea to write the story in 1978, which is the exact same year that John Wayne Gacy was arrested and came to public attention. Although uh, King claims that his inspiration came from the tale of the Billy Goat's Gruff with, you know, things living under bridges. It does seem like a crazy coincidence that it's also the year that John Wayne Gacy emerged. And that basically brings us all the way up to date to the modern sense of the scary clown. Of course, the It films have been remade recently. There's been loads of other creepy clowns since the initial release of the book. We've had a whole bunch of sort of copycat clown murderer films. And basically, clowns have never been the same since. These days, scary clown costumes sadly outnumber um, not-so-scary clown costumes in terms of their availability on sites like Amazon, which is kind of uh, a little bit sad in a way, I suppose, especially if you yourself um, would like to be a friendly children's party clown. It must be a bit disheartening to know that everyone now thinks that you're a horrible monster. Um, the only fly in the ointment of the chain of events that I presented as my theory is in fact none other than the Joker. Get a wrong number. Leave your message at the sound of the shriek. No, please, don't! Ah! The Joker first appeared not in 1978, post-John Wayne Gacy. The Joker first appeared in 1940s in Batman 1, the first issue of Batman. Um, and uh, he was basically created by three guys, Bill Finger, Bob Kane, and Jerry Robinson. Um, but uh, it seems like they took their inspiration for his appearance from a film called The Man Who Laughs from 1928, uh, which is an adaptation of a Victor Hugo novel of the same name. The film itself is not really a jokery film. Uh, it's a story about a man who is hideously disfigured, so his face permanently looks like it's in a, in a big mad grin. Uh, but it is uncanny how much he really does look like the initial drawings of the Joker from the Batman comic. So perhaps I'm wrong in my assertion that people always thought that clowns were lovely, wonderful people. Perhaps the influence of the Joker from the 19th 40s onwards was also slowly starting to turn uh, children and adults against clowns. I'm not sure about that. But in any case, that is a fantastic uh, springboard onto our next topic, which is clown movies, because of course, one of the clown movies of note at the moment is none other than The Joker. Uh, so I've decided to split this episode into two parts. We're going to leave it here and continue with the next part focused on clown news and reviews. So uh, see you then, I guess? Uh, okay, goodbye. Fuck, 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 fuck